would be, open your Bibles to Matthew, the 18th chapter, and in just a few minutes we'll begin there. And we will have a lot of verses that we'll be looking at tonight, and, and hopefully as we go, you'll see that they fall in a type of system, if you will. There'll be about five or six that we'll lay out as our groundwork, and then we'll, we'll go from one to another, but back to some of the very same verses as we study tonight. God's blessed us with a lot of opportunities the last couple of weeks to touch a lot of lives. I don't guess within a year's period of time, except for maybe the exception of during Vacation Bible School, that as a church family, we have the opportunity to touch more lives than when Friends Day and Easter uh, fall close together as they have this year. And with that in mind, I want to encourage you to be prayerful, to have your eyes open, and for those individuals that maybe you know them, you're friends with them, you're, you're maybe family members with them, and there's already in the last two weeks been some good seeds that have been planted, continue praying for them, continue encouraging them in any way uh, that you can, and, and let it be our genuine hope, and let it be our fervent prayer that there'll be an eternal difference made in the seeds that have been sown recently. Opportunities come and opportunities go. And let's be wise with the opportunities that are before us right now. Can you imagine a civilization where the citizens had no expectations? Where there were no rules, no fines, no judges, no penalties? Each was free to do whatever they thought was good in their own mind. Whatever at the moment they wanted to do, they did it. Most of us would immediately desire another place to live. Can you imagine a family where there are no rules? Where the children are free to come and go and to do and say whatever at any moment they would like to, including the parents. And they too had no restrictions, no obligations, no responsibilities. That family would very quickly become dysfunctional. We understand in a civilization and in a family, how important it is to have discipline, to have guidelines, to have restrictions, to have punishments. And friends, if we fail to see that in the Lord's church, perhaps we've bought one of the greatest lies that Satan could ever sell us. Can you imagine being a part of a church family where no one has any expectations of each other? More importantly, no one has any expectations of each other that God has placed upon that family. Tonight, I want to encourage you to remember that if you have been adopted into God's family, it was a privilege. And along with that privilege came great responsibility to be children of God that would bring glory and honor to His name in everything that we are and in everything that we do. But then that brings us to the question, what do we do if someone doesn't live up to that in God's family? You know, one of the greatest compliments that we pay maybe to a friend is to be able to say, they're like family to us. One of the greatest compliments in a sense that we could say to each other, spiritually speaking, is not we're like family. It's to honestly be able to say we are family. We are brothers and sisters in Christ because we've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ. Now please realize, 
Tonight, this study is not the result of the elders asking that there be a study on this. Tonight, this study is not the result of me believing for some reason that there's an urgency to this particular message. Tonight, this study is the result of wanting to make sure that we as a congregation study the entire truth. That there's never topics that that we scurry around. And if we're going to give a month-long series, seven or eight lessons on the topic of fellowship, we must talk about not only the positive aspects of fellowship, but we must also talk about the limitations of fellowship that God has placed upon His people. That brings us to our first place that we'll start tonight. Has God placed limitations in fellowship? Does God speak that there would be some who would not enjoy the same fellowship as others? Let's look at several passages that there are many other things taught in these passages. But as we first go through these passages, I simply want to kind of lay them out, if you will, almost like text laying out on a table to say, see, look, here it speaks about it, here it speaks about it, here it speaks about it. And, and even as we lay out five or six texts very quickly, there's still many more we could look at, but that should be sufficient for tonight's study. So let's begin in Matthew the 18th chapter as we think about fellowship. In Matthew the 18th chapter in verse 15, 16, and 17, he says, <clears throat> this is Jesus speaking, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, now notice this, here's a change in fellowship here. Let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. You see what's interesting as we begin this study tonight is that each one of us has responsibility in church discipline. It's not that church discipline begins and ends with the eldership. According to the scriptures, church discipline begins with each faithful Christian saying, I love you enough that if your soul is in jeopardy, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to talk with you about that which is endangering your soul. Now what happens if that happens and two or three more go and the entire church goes and every time the answer is, I'm not repenting. I'm not making my, my, my sins. I'm not turning away from them and turning my life towards righteousness again. He says, then there has to be a change in fellowship. Now that person would be more to you like a heathen, someone who's out in the world instead of somebody that's family and the children of God's family. Look at Romans, the 16th chapter. Let's see another verse here. Romans, the 16th chapter, we'll read two verses, verse 17 and 18. Obviously, this is close to the end of the book of Romans that Paul wrote. And he says in 17 and 18, Now I urge you, brethren, note those. See how there's a difference here? Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned. And here's the words and avoid them. 
There's something different now about the fellowship. God's designed fellowship when it's healthy, that we should cling to one another, that we should be joined to one another, that we should interact in each other's lives. And now God in his writings gives to us through Paul, there's a time where we don't do that. There's a time where we don't cling to one another. Instead, there's some that we intentionally avoid. Now, to finish this thought in 18, he says, For those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly, talking about a fleshly nature, and by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Let's go to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and see another teaching on this, just a couple of pages over in your Bible. This is probably one of the best known chapters on this particular topic, because almost the entire chapter deals with how we would deal in the church with a brother uh, or sister who is living a continual sinful life. The case here in verse 1 is that this man was practicing sexual immorality by having his father's wife. It was probably a stepmother situation, if you will. And he even points out in verse 1 and says, even the heathens would not look at that and say that it's acceptable or that it's tolerable. And so let's notice verse 2. He says in verse 2, you are puffed up. Now that's talking about the church. That's not talking about the individual. See, the church was puffed up and and they were boasting of the fact of, look who we accept. Look how loving we are. Is it loving? You ever heard of tough love? What would you do for someone's soul versus for what they want you to say? Would we say to someone what they want to hear or would we say what they need to hear for their soul's sake? You know, the last two decades, there have been marquees on church signs that have bothered me since the very beginning. And I know there's different angles that you could read this, so I'm not judging other people's motives that put these marquees up. But this idea that says, come as you are, the Lord accepts all. Find that in the Scriptures. Everybody in the Scriptures that was called into the Lord was called to change. Repentance means change. The Lord didn't invite anybody, come as you are. He invited everybody to change who you are. A whole new creation, he says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 17. Change who you are only by the grace of God, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through fully submitting your life. Change who you are and the Lord has his open arms. And so here is a church that they had started that wide open arms saying, it doesn't matter who you are. Come on in. And Paul writes to them and says, you're puffed up talking to the church. You've become proud. You've become arrogant. Notice why. Because they started setting the rules of fellowship instead of obeying God's law of fellowship. That's arrogance. That's being puffed up. And so we continue reading in verse 2. He says, you're puffed up and have not rather mourned. Remember this morning? Toward the end of the lesson, we we talked about the fact that we have to mourn, we have to go through godly sorrow, and that will lead to great joy. And here is a sin that's taking place, and this congregation is not mourning the sin. So in essence, they're not going to receive the righteous uh, rejoicing that they ought to receive because they don't have the godly mourning. And so he rebukes them for this, Paul does. And he says that he, this is still the rest of verse 2, that he who has done this deed, talking about the sinful man, might be taken away from among you. That's strong words. He needs to be taken out from among you. That's, that's the withdrawal. Look at verse 5. Deliver such a one to Satan 
Skip down to verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral and gives a list there of other sins such as covetousness, idolaters, or revilers, or drunkards, or extortioners, not even to eat with such a person. Skip down to 13. But those who are outside God judges, therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Let's go to a fourth text. Let's go to 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter. 2 Thessalonians, the third chapter. Let's begin reading at verse 6. 2 Thessalonians 3 and 6. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw... And that's talking about fellowship, withdraw fellowship, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which he received of us. Skip down to verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. Verse 15, yet do not count him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother. Notice the motive is very important, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit later. And, and so I don't know right now where you are spiritually and, and where you are in this topic, but if you've conjured up in your mind that this is something mean-spirited, you've conjured up completely the wrong thing. So if you don't, don't know the proper conclusion to draw, we're coming to that in just a few minutes. But we want to see, as we just lay these texts out on the table, that God speaks over and over and over that there are limitations in fellowship. And we must be aware of that. Let's look at, at at least one more. Titus, the third chapter. Uh, Titus, the third chapter. Let's read verse 10 and 11. <clears throat> Titus, the third chapter. And in verse 10, he begins verse 10 with the word reject. And that's the idea of withdraw from. In other words, to avoid fellowship with. And so he says, reject who? A divisive man after the first and second admonition. So that goes back very similar to Matthew, the 18th chapter. And then notice verse 11. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now... Surely all of us here this evening, after studying that many passages, would at least agree that God teaches that there, is a, there, there are limits to fellowship. That, keep in mind, I, I, I love what I hear our elders say when they meet oftentimes, and they've said it to you as a congregation, they say, this isn't our church, this is the Lord's church. Now, as we study this topic tonight, we need to remember, this isn't our church. We're not talking about how would you want fellowship to be? What would you want the limitations to be? This is, we're a part of the Lord's church. And the Lord has established parameters of fellowship. And so, from these passages, it becomes clear to us that He has established those parameters. And so now, it would be very good for us to go back through many of these same passages and ask the question, why? God has commanded the idea of withdrawing fellowship. But why? Why is it done? Is it, is it because like some outside of the Lord's body, they might hear of this and they might think that it's a group of religious people becoming arrogant. Oh, so you're self-righteous. So you really think you're better than other people. 
No, that's not by any means. That's not the motive. That's not what is to be the result of the actions. It's not about anybody's pride. The truth is, it's about humility. Humbly submitting ourselves to the will of God. Well, why does God give this as a teaching? If you will, let's drop back to 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. The chapter I said that said to you that it says so much about this topic. And I want you to notice again a verse that we just read, and it's verse 5. Notice why Paul, inspired of the Holy Spirit, says that this withdrawing of fellowship ought to be done. Notice the motive behind it. 1 Corinthians 5 and 5. He says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. All right, here's someone in the body of Christ in fellowship with God and with God's children. But they decide to begin living an immoral life. They're going to practice fornication. They're going to practice drunkenness, whatever the sin may be, and they're not going to repent of it. Should they continue in fellowship? As if nothing is wrong, according to God? Well, are we just worried about a number that's posted? Oh, isn't it wonderful? We had X number at worship this morning. That's all that matters. Isn't it wonderful? We had X number at worship Sunday night. That's all that matters. Is that all that matters? Remember at the beginning of the year when we talked about discipleship? Being a follower of the Lord and His teachings? And it's about an entire life. It's about, we, we study about immersing ourselves in discipleship. Does it matter to God how someone lives? If the church family wholly endorses a person while they're in the midst of sin, what is that saying to the person? What's going to happen on the day of judgment when the Lord returns and that person says, well, I didn't think what I was doing was wrong. There were hundreds of God's children surrounding me and they all acted like it was okay. I assume if God's family thought it was okay, it it surely was going to be all right with God. You see what he's saying here? He says, deliver him to Satan. Don't place him in fellowship any longer. Place him out of fellowship. If we're in God's fellowship, God is the king. Or if we're in the fellowship of the world, Satan is the king. Take him from God's fellowship to Satan's fellowship because actually that's where he is anyway. And then why do we do that? Notice again in verse 5, it's for the destruction of the flesh. What's the flesh? It's the fleshly carnal nature that is feeding that particular sin. It says, move him there so that fleshly nature will be destroyed, so that when Jesus comes again, he will have repented and he will have returned and his spirit will be saved. Friends, it's about saving the erring child. It's about loving that soul enough to discipline them. Parents that love their children discipline them. Hebrews, the 12th chapter, teaches that God loves His children enough to discipline them. And then He gives teaching such as this to say to the entire church family, love each other enough to discipline each other for your eternity's sake. Let's see it a couple other places. By the way, uh, just to follow up on this particular man that was being disciplined, It's pretty neat to believe that in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter, that that man was the one that Paul was writing about, where there had been some grief brought into Paul's life, but yet by this time, 
with this particular man, apparently. But by this time, look in 2 Corinthians, the second chapter. And in verse 6 and 7, the punishment, apparently, that they administered, notice how it paid off. He says, this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. So that, on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. So what Paul's saying? Now he's saying to the church at Corinth, you did a good job. The way you disciplined that man was sufficient. Now he is repenting. Now it's time to wholly and fully embrace this individual in fellowship. Why were they to disfellowship? To win the soul back. In Matthew the 18th chapter, remember what we read just a little bit earlier in Matthew the 18th chapter. Remember in verse 15? when he told us as individuals to go to each other one-on-one, do you remember why that was said to be done? At the end of verse 15, we do it because he says, if he hears you, you have gained your brother. It's the same idea as the way the book of James ends in James the fifth chapter and verse 19, that he who converts his brother from sin has saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. Friends, We ought to love each other enough to go to them. Let's pause here for just a moment. It's easy for you and I to hug each other and say, I really care about you. But if you know that I am living a sinful life, that's when you can prove whether or not you really love me. Would you love me enough to come to me one-on-one and sit down and beg me to turn away from the sin because you care where my soul spends an eternity? That's what Matthew 18 is about. And if I wouldn't listen to you, would you love me enough to get one or two others to come and sit down and talk with me? Would you love it me enough to bring the entire church together to talk to me? Would you love me enough to treat me like a heathen if I didn't in hopes that my soul would be saved? Friends, These are God's teachings. These are God's guidelines of how He expects the church family to love each other and to prove their love for each other. Look at 2 Thessalonians 3 again. 2 Thessalonians 3, let's read verse 14. We've already read passages around here, but notice, notice again why. We're still looking at why. In verse 14, he says, If anyone does not obey your words in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him. Why? That he may be ashamed. There ought to be shame that is associated with sin. And a part of that shame ought to be the breaking of fellowship, according to God. Maybe the individual based on the sin that they are participating in, is not bringing shame into their life. 
Maybe, maybe you or me or somebody else in the congregation says, I can't believe they're not ashamed of that. People, people know what they're doing and, and they have no shame with that. And so then we say, I wonder what God would want us to do. Withdraw fellowship. That will bring shame to the sin that they know they beforehand had no shame in. Why? Because we love their soul enough that we would do that. You know, in Galatians, the sixth chapter in verse one, he gives the direct command, brethren, if a man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. So why does the spiritual go to the brother or the sister that's failing in their life at that time spiritually? You go to restore such a one, but notice the humility here and the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Notice verse 2, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. One of the greatest ways we can bear each other's burdens is when we care enough to change somebody's eternity when we care enough to confront. How many times do we think about the teaching in the Beatitudes in Matthew the fifth chapter, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. It's not easy to make peace. Sometimes the only way to make peace with someone's soul is to confront. Sometimes the only way to make peace is to do what oftentimes is very uncomfortable. But it's worth it to make peace in God's family. But that's not the only reason. Let's look at a couple other verses that teach us another reason, a very important reason. That is, we also have a responsibility to protect God's church. Look back again, if you will, 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. I want to remind you that the church is made up of people. Everybody, whether it's a newborn babe, Someone that's, that's a young Christian and, and they're just learning the way of righteousness. And then, of course, the church is made up of those that have been uh, Christians for decades and they're more mature. Do you realize that we as a church family in our fellowship, we have a responsibility to make sure that everybody is safe? Even those who are young spiritually, it's the church's responsibility, everybody's responsibility to make sure that they're safe. Well, what happens... What do we do when they begin to be endangered? Here's an example. You remember, we're back now in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter. Look at verse 6 again, and notice we're back to that element of the church being full of pride and and look who we accept type of attitude. And notice what he says in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. You see, they weren't glorifying God by their decisions. They were glorifying the sin, ultimately, by their decisions. And he says, Paul says, it's not good. Now, why is it not good? Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And the next phrase he says in seven is, therefore, purge out the old leaven. Unleavened bread. That dough only has to have the slightest amount of leaven for the entire amount of dough to be affected. And then it begins to rise. Paul here is using this teaching to say, listen, the church is like unleavened dough. Sin, in this illustration, is like leaven. He says, be careful. If you accept that brother in sexual immorality, 
you're going to see that sin spread throughout your church family. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Paul, what are you saying? He's saying, church, protect the church. Don't allow, using an Old Testament terminology, don't allow sin inside the camp. There's not anybody here that's perfect. But every one of us are supposed to be striving to live a life of perfection. And sin is not something that we continue in. It's something that is the exception that when we do it, we regret it. And our heart is filled with remorse and we repent of it and we turn away from it. And so if somebody is going to continue that life of sin, what are we going to do to make sure that it doesn't hurt that newborn babe? What are we going to make, do to make sure it doesn't hurt our children, our younger ones? What are we going to do to make sure it doesn't hurt all of us? There is a responsibility to protect the church. That's why in Romans the 16th chapter, in Romans the 16th chapter in verse 17 and 18, we've already read this, so I want to drop straight down, if you will, to verse 18. Notice in 18, he said, for those who are such, and this is talking about false teachings inside the church. And he says, for those who are such do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly. And by smooth words and flattering speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. Someone comes in and, and here, here is a, a young babe in Christ. And, and if that individual is allowed to teach their false doctrine, and if they can do it with flattery, and if they can build up the individual while they're indoctrinating them in false teaching, Paul says, that young simple one is going to be pulled away also. Whose fault is it? It's the false teacher's fault, and it's the church's fault that didn't discipline the false teacher and literally separate them from the life of the church. I suppose this is something that most of us take for granted. But we would be wise to consider it and appreciate it. Do you realize that among the 50, 60, 70, 80 classes in this congregation, every class ought to be a safe place for anyone to learn in. If a class and or a teacher ever becomes a place that is at risk spiritually, that must be addressed. It can't be overlooked. Because the church owes it to the church to make sure that everybody in the fellowship is safe. Where does this bring us? Let's go to 2 Timothy, the second chapter, and we'll start wrapping this lesson up. 2 Timothy, the second chapter, look in verse uh, 16, 17, and 18. I just want to show you, this is one example that the early church had a problem with these two men here in 2 Timothy 2, 16, 17, and 18. And notice it begins in verse 16, but shun profane. That word shun is, is of course, to avoid. It's, it's to uh, not have fellowship with. It's to keep away from. So here are some teachers that are teaching, and they're told, the, Paul is telling Timothy, do not let these men in contact with your church family. He says, he says, but shun profane and idle babblings. They will increase to more ungodliness. See what's going to happen? You let them in and that's not going to stay like it is. 
it's like the leaven hitting the unleavened lump. It's going to increase more and more. And so he gives an example. He says in 17, their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. Paul says, look, if you don't address it, you'll lose others in your congregation. We're talking about souls. We're talking about eternity. We're not just talking about numbers and attendance. We're talking about where people spend in eternity. And Paul says, Timothy, do I need to give you an example? You know these two men. And you know that we weren't able to stop them from infiltrating particular congregations. And you know that now there's other souls that are lost because we did not shun them quick enough. So what's the answer? Who do we withdraw from? Friends, all of this is not simple and black and white at this point. But there's great wisdom, great compassion, and great discipline that needs to be measured and implemented. But to give you a few of passages that we have already read, here's a list of passages we've already read tonight. And it would be according to Matthew 18, those who sin against a brother and refuse to make it right. According to Romans 6 and Titus 3, it would be those who initiate division and those who are causing other people to stumble. According to 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 11, he gives a list there of, of continual immoral sins that he says if those things are continually happen, happening, the church must love the brother or sister enough and love the church enough. You want this soul to repent, you want to protect the church. And then the fourth one we see in 2 Timothy, the passage we just read, anyone that would threaten sound doctrine, if there's not going to be repentance, that individual has to be separated from those that they would otherwise teach. And then in 2 Thessalonians 3 and 6 that we read earlier, any Christian that would walk disorderly to the ways of Christianity, the Christian faith, and refuse to submit. You know, there's a side of that that it's just unpleasant. We love to think of the church family as a happy family that loves God and everybody serves together. But you know, the reality is we're in a spiritual battle. And Satan will use any one that he can to hurt God's church. And we have to be aware of that. And we have to be humble to His teachings. And we have to love each other enough to kindly discipline each other. We have to love the church enough to believe that she ought to always be a safe place to live, worship, and serve. And we need to love the Lord enough to say, Lord, where you lead me, I will follow. Tonight, I would urge all of us to pray for wisdom, to know what our part ought to be in God's teachings. There's no doubt in a congregation that has eldership, they carry a, a heavy weight of responsibility in the topic that's studied tonight. But if I believe that that's where it begins and ends, I've missed it completely. We all have a responsibility to each other. Let's love each other.
really love each other. Tonight, if there is anything that we can do to help you in your walk, in your relationship, in your life with the Lord, to be faithful. If you've never been immersed into Christ, tonight would be the time to begin that journey that would lead toward heaven. Maybe you've begun that journey and you recognize that you strayed from that and you want to repent and come back. We want to encourage you. We want to be the brothers and sisters that God would expect us to be to each other. There's not any of us here perfect, but we can all leave here forgiven and we can all leave here in fellowship with each other. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand as we sing.